Good morning. If uh, you looked at your bulletin and thought you're seen wrong, you're not. Uh, I'm not Gene Mims. I am Jeff Mims. Nothing changed over the holidays. And you say, well, what is that all about? If you're new with us, you may not realize that we planted a church out of our church about a year ago. And, uh, well, a little bit more than that now, almost a year and a half ago. And during that time period, uh, it had kind of been our custom that on the fifth Sundays, we had kind of swapped pulpits to kind of keep us tied together. Uh, And that's just... Uh, not what we're doing anymore. And so that's kind of one of those things that's a holdover, but we're excited to, to be back. I, I want to talk to you about a couple of things kind of coming up in the new year that are exciting things for us as a church as we look forward to the new year. Uh, one of those things is that we're really getting close to our gospel engagement goal. If you haven't been around for gospel engagements, you may not be familiar with what that is. A gospel engagement is just any time we try to interact with someone where we speak the name of Jesus. So it could be as simple as an invitation for someone to come to church with us, or it could be as simple as doing something for one of our new neighbors, taking over some cookies and telling them we did it because the love of Christ compels us to do that, being a good neighbor, praying for a co-worker. I mean, lots of different things that you could be doing that would engage someone with the gospel. It's just planting seeds of the gospel. And we set a goal this year of having 50,000 gospel engagements, and we're really, really close. And in fact, uh, in the next week, uh, you should be, if you live in this area, seeing a mailer go out uh, to some selected neighborhoods, and maybe some of your friends will get one, that kind of advertises a new series that will start for us next Sunday that we're calling Fresh Start as we look at the new year and what it means to have a fresh start and kind of thinking about what God would have for us uh, as a church, but also as individuals. What do you do when you've blown it? Anybody ever do that? No, you didn't. You've been with your family at Christmas. It's been perfect. You you would never lose your temper putting together that Lego set. Uh, You just wouldn't do that. That's only something preachers do. You know, know, it's, it's one of those things, right? We all need a fresh start as we look at those kinds of things. And so we're going to be doing that. Also in February, this February is going to be an exciting time for us. We're going to take four Sundays uh, uh, on the Sunday nights and have some activities going on that we're calling Spiritual Renewal. It's a Spiritual Renewal Month, and there'll be kind of four sessions that go along with that. We've got some, some different speakers coming in to speak to us about that because we believe that God wants to renew our hearts as he gets ready for the work that he has for us this year. And so we're going to be spending some time doing that and I never, you know, kind of make a big deal about Sunday nights. We preach uh, through the year, almost every Sunday night, except for the month of kind of June and December. We take those off and kind of some selected holidays. But we're always in a book study doing that. And I just would encourage you, though, with this. These will be some that you won't want to miss. Um, we've got some great, some great things lined up for us for that. And, and that kind of leads us to what will be our new vision. So many of you have been asking me, when's Vision Sunday? Well, that's not true. None of you have asked me that. But you should ask me that. You should be concerned with the vision of the church that God's given us. And that's happening at the end of January. We're going to spend a Sunday again kind of going over what did God do in our lives last year and what is he doing as we go forward this year. And I think that's going to be an exciting thing for you to hear about all the things that God allowed us to accomplish as a church and all the things that we feel like he's leading us and stretching us to go forward. So you'll be hearing a little bit more about that. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you this morning to go ahead and take them uh, to uh, turn in Matthew chapter 4. We're going to be looking uh, at how we can fight temptation. How do we fight temptation? In a new year, might it be helpful for us to think about understanding our adversary and how he works and how we might fight temptation? We're going to look at the temptation of Christ today. And as we get started kind of thinking about temptation, let me talk to you about two 
kind of incorrect ideas that I think a lot of people hold when it comes to temptation before we start. Because if we understand these ideas about temptation and understand why they may be incorrect, I think that will help us as we look at how we fight temptations. The first way that I think a lot of people are incorrect in their understanding about temptation is they they believe that they are somehow weak or they're in sin if they're tempted. If you've been tempted this week, it means you're alive. That's all that means. It means that you're living. A lot of people, though, think that that's wrong. They feel like, man, I had this thought, and because I had this thought, it means I'm a horrible person or I'm in sin, and and that's not the case at all. When we talk about temptation, temptation is common to every person. Every man, woman, boy, and girl is going to be tempted throughout their lifetime, and it's not something that stops in their lifetime. And so to be tempted simply means that you're human. And so we sometimes struggle with that as, well, why am I being tempted so much to feel this way or think this way or to act in this way? Or why can't I seem to break this bad habit or or whatever's going on? But temptation is part of the human experience, and we're going to see that in Jesus' life today. And just because you're being tempted or you're under what feels like some, what we might call an attack of the adversary, where he's really after you to do something it doesn't mean that you've sinned there's a big difference between being tempted and actually actually following through with the sin and and I think if we understand that 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 should alleviate a little bit of some of this guilt that we sometimes carry around that says well I was really tempted I I had this bad thought about a co-worker well that just means you were alive it just means you're breathing it's what you do with that that changes everything, right? That, that's the really important thing for us to understand. But there's a second incorrect way of thinking about temptation, and that's that some people say that, you know, if you live long enough, if you follow God long enough, if you really kind of walk in the light, you'll get to a place where you no longer struggle with sin. Really. You realize that if you read the Scripture, right, the Apostle John says that if we claim that we have no sin, We know that we're not of Christ. Why would he say that? Being a a person who struggles with sin, if you read your Bible, you realize you're in really good company, right? The apostles sinned. Do you remember that James and John uh, wanted to have the the highest seat? They wanted to sit at the right hand of Jesus Christ in heaven and the left hand. They wanted to be at the highest place of honor. Peter said, I'll never deny you, and then he did it. I mean, you understand this is part of the human experience. In, in fact, the Apostle Paul talked about later on how he and Peter had been at odds with one another because Peter was acting one way when he was around a certain group of people. And then when other people came around, he felt like he had to act a different way. And the Apostle Paul says, I opposed him to his face. Why would he say that? He was struggling with sin, just like you are. Be very wary of anyone who would say to you, well, I don't struggle with sin anymore. I have reached the higher plane. You dead if you've reached the higher plane and don't struggle with sin. You're dead, gone. That's the only way. That's when we get to the glorified state. So if we were to talk about sin, an old way of saying it is it's kind of like this. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've been saved, the scripture would say it like this that you have been saved from the penalty of sin. Right? You're not going to face the penalty of sin. When a person becomes saved, they no longer have to worry about whether or not they're going to spend eternity in heaven or hell. That's true. But we would also say we are being saved, present tense, right? This kind of continuous action of being saved from the power of sin. 
We can fight sin. No longer do we just have to give into it anymore. We don't have to just live a life that seems like we're helpless and, well, I was tempted to sin, so I just had to. You don't have to do that anymore. You can fight in the power of the Holy Spirit, and we can be uh, kind of being saved from the power of sin, but one day we will be saved from all presence of sin. There will be no more sin when we reach that glorified state. That's very important for us to understand. And so if we understand those things correctly, then it understands, it, it will help us to understand what happens when we are tempted. And so I think um, if, if we could look at this this morning, we'll see how Jesus dealt with it, and I think it'll be good for us. One thing I, I guess I should say is, we kind of finish this introduction is don't underestimate the power of the adversary or temptation. Don't ever say, well, I would never. You know, that's dangerous territory for all of us because any one of us could commit any sin at any time, right? I mean, we're, we're all human. We're all frail in that sense. Let's read and see what happened in Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you. And if you fall down and worship me, and then Jesus said to him, go Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and behold, the angels came and began to minister to him. A couple of things should jump out at you at verse one. One is that Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. When we talk about this idea of led by the Spirit, this was something that God was doing. Jesus was being led by the Holy Spirit in the same way that you and I are led by the Holy Spirit. He was always on mission with God the Father, and so the Holy Spirit would be communicating to him. And so it says here, this was on purpose for a reason that Jesus was taken out. If you go to Israel with us uh, this summer, you'll be able to see the wilderness. We were looking at some slides a couple of weeks ago as we were preparing for that and kind of seeing some pictures of that. It's a desolate place. I don't know how you view the wilderness. I think of the wilderness kind of like the forest, not that at all. It's desolate. There's nothing there. It's, it's like being in the desert, so to speak. That's where he was led to. And then it says to be tempted by the devil. That word devil simply means the adversary or the accuser. And the scripture says a little bit about that. It says that our adversary is a roaring lion seeking whom he may destroy. We know that he has a plan for us. He wants to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And so we understand that he's doing that here. He has a very uh, intentional purpose when he comes to tempt us. And, and you should not forget that, that no temptation comes to you for your benefit right? It has a very specific purpose, and we see that in Jesus' life. He's trying to derail Jesus' purpose and his life here on earth. And so as we watch this and read about this, we're going to see what happens, and we'll see a couple of things. Verse 2 tells us that Jesus went 40 days and 40 nights without food. Now, we're not going to talk about fasting, but fasting is a wonderful practice for us 
to, to have in our own lives. It's a discipline for us to have in our own lives. And, and if you've never participated in a fast, you might not understand what's the purpose of a fast. Well, there, there are different reasons that we fast, but sometimes we fast so that we can uh, be generous to the poor. Sometimes we fast so that we can ask God to move on our behalf in a very specific way. What we're saying is that food is not as important as prayer in this time. Sometimes we fast so that we can kind of refocus ourselves on the Lord Jesus Christ, to be able to pray and just seek him and deny ourselves the comfort of, of those daily things that we might want, like food uh, and drink, those kinds of things. But a 40-day fast was a unique experience. In Scripture, there are three uh, people that had a 40-day fast four times that it took place. Moses fasted for 40 days twice when he received the Ten Commandments the first time and the second time. Elijah uh, took food and then went in the journey, uh, in, I'm sorry, in the strength of that food on a journey for 40 days and 40 nights. And then Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. You say, well, have you ever fasted for 40 days and 40 nights? I haven't. Uh, I do know someone who has. Uh, one of um, uh, the guys who led our school uh, when I was uh, in seminary, fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. It was an amazing thing how God answered prayer when he did that. But it, it, it's a unique thing in the scripture that Jesus does here. So you can imagine being in the wilderness, 40 days without food, and then all of a sudden here comes the tempter. And what we're going to see is that he tempted him with three different temptations. The temptations could be described like this. Number one would be the worry about needs, putting God to the test number two, Number three would be idolatry. So the worry about needs, putting God to the test, and idolatry would be the three temptations that we see here. Let's look back at verse three and four to see the first one, this worry about needs. And the tempter came and said, if you are the son of God, command these stones become bread. And he answered and said, it is written that man shall not live on bread alone, but, out of every, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I can imagine that at the end of a 40-day fast, you would be thinking about food. That would be normal. Uh, every time that I've ever fasted, at the end of it, I was thinking about food. If you've ever had that experience, you know what that's like. You've been denying yourself, and at a certain point, it becomes a real discipline to begin praying and keep praying when supper time is coming and you're about to break the fast, right? It becomes that thing. So you can imagine maybe at the end of 40 days what would have been going through Jesus' mind and certainly what would have been going through his physical body. The temptation, though, here was to circumvent the work of the Spirit. Remember that we said the Spirit had led him into the wilderness, and he enters into this 40-day fast, and God is doing something, and the Spirit's doing something in Jesus' life, and the temptation is to circumvent that and use the supernatural power that Jesus has to command stones to become bread, to take something and make it miraculous so that he could sustain himself, almost as if to say, you can't sustain this any longer. I know you're hungry. Go ahead and do this. Don't worry about what the Spirit has, but since the Spirit had led him into the wilderness... We might think that the Spirit would lead him out of the wilderness. And you can imagine that Jesus might have been worried about his daily needs. But Jesus answered with a scripture. And he's going to do this every time. And all of them are found in the book of Deuteronomy. And I would remind us that they didn't have a Bible like we have to look at. They didn't have you know, something they could carry around with the Old and New Testament. They were learning from the Old Testament all the time. And so he's using the scripture to answer temptation as it comes and defeat temptation. That's insightful for us. And he does it with Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. 
He quotes what Moses said to the children of Israel. He, being God, humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Now, what what does that mean? You remember that the children of Israel, when they left Egypt, wandered the wilderness for 40 years. And as they're wandering, it's a desolate place. They, they don't have sometimes food. They don't have sometimes water. You may remember that Moses had to provide the water. God tells him to strike a rock and water gushed forth, right? You, you, you remember it was a desolate place. And it would be easy for them to have been worried about what they were going to do to sustain themselves, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's a very logical thing for us to think about. And so what Satan does is come here and says, I know what you're worried about. These things that you need in your life, you need food. Fix it. Do it. Circumvent what God has for you and start worrying about how you're going to make it. It's funny. Later, Jesus would teach his followers to pray, and he would say, when you pray before the Lord, you can pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Have you ever thought about that? Give us this day. I recently had the unfortunate experience of meeting with my financial planner. It's never exciting. He never has great news. I keep waiting on him to say, you can retire now, you know. And what he generally says is, you're going to be at this a long, long time, right? Why do we do that? Why do we worry about those things? We worry about them because it's in the front of our minds, right? We're worried about... Well, what's coming tomorrow? How am I going to pay for this? How am I going to be able to take care of this? Am I going to have enough to eat? What are we going to do to pay for college for these kids? How are we going to be able to buy the braces? What are we going to do for our clothes this year? Man, things have gone up. Things are getting more expensive. How are we going to be able to make it? Can we make it? What's going to happen? How will I get by today? But then we start thinking about how will I get by tomorrow and next week? and next year, and five years from now. And we worry about those things. And that's the temptation, to worry about daily needs. Well, if Satan can get you sidetracked with daily needs, well, he's got you in a, in a place that, that becomes very real, doesn't it? Because if you've ever wondered how you were going to make it through that day, then you know how real this is, right? Now, some of our experience has not been like that. You know, we live in the wealthiest nation in the world, and, and for some of us, our experience has not been worrying about the daily need of today. Like, did we have enough food in the pantry today? Let me tell you something. If you've ever had to worry about a daily need, you know exactly how tempting this is. It's tempting on a number of levels. One, will God provide? Two, what do I need to do about this? How am I going to fix this? What do I have to do to circumvent God's process in my life to get this and accumulate this? A number of years ago, I was going through an experience where the hymn, do you remember we used to sing this sometimes, I need thee every hour. You know, whether you realize it or not, you need him every hour. That's the need. It's not worrying about next week. It's not worrying about next month. 
And I just began to, to sing that song in the morning as I woke up. And I began to just say, like, you know, Lord, I need you, like, now, the next hour, the following hour. I, I need you today. And if I could get to the end of the day and lay my head down, we'd finish the day and it was a good day. It was a good day. And we just wake up again the next day and, Lord, I need you every hour. What Jesus was helping us to understand is that daily needs are important. They're really important. We have to keep our eyes on the Lord. Jesus said that our daily needs don't have to get to the front of what we have in our minds. You know, later this year, we're going to see how Jesus taught us from the Sermon on the Mount that we seek first the kingdom of God, not stuff, not next year's stuff, not five years from now stuff, but seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will be added unto you. Why did he teach his followers that? It was because it was a life lesson that they needed and we needed today. We have to be able to trust him. We have to be able to trust him with everything we need. And you know, a lot of times we, we can find ourselves working hard to, to feel like I need to get this house, I need to get this car, I've got to get a better job, I've got to get all this stuff, I've got to accumulate all that. But here's what Jesus was waiting on. He was waiting on the Spirit's leading. The Spirit had led him there, and Jesus knew the Spirit would lead him out. We'll see that at the end. And he was going to wait. He was going to trust that God would provide. So we worry about needs First, but the second temptation is also familiar to us. It's putting God to the test. Look at verse 5. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, Satan, undeterred by the fact that Jesus had quoted scripture, decided to quote a little scripture to Jesus. And so he quoted out of Psalm chapter 91. And you say, well, that's an interesting thing. Why would the adversary or the accuser take the scripture and then use it to try to uh, maybe confuse Jesus or to tempt Jesus with it? And the temptation was to put God to the test. You are the Messiah. You're the one that's supposed to be uh, given this charge of angels who will protect you at any time, take yourself up to the top of the temple, throw yourself off, and let's find out if God is really as good as his word. That was the test, right? And Jesus did something that we need to understand. We, we see the value of knowing scripture because as Satan tried to twist the scriptures, Jesus was ready. We say this around here, and I think it's helpful. The way to view the scripture is to let the scripture interpret the scripture. You can't take a verse of scripture and pull it out and, and hold it on. Jesus, unimpressed with Satan's temptation, quoted again from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Now this is interesting. Why do you think it is that Jesus has gone back to the book of Deuteronomy and he's quoting scripture that had been given to the Israelites as they came out of Israel in a 40-year journey? Every one of these scriptures that Jesus uses to answer Satan comes out of the book of Deuteronomy, the same thing that Moses was telling the people. Why, why do you think that is? It's because these same temptations have been around forever. They, they don't get any better. They don't get any worse. They're all the same. 
They're always the same. They'd been true for the Israels, they, the Israelites. They'd been tempted in the same way. They're true for you. They're true for me. They're going to be true for our children and grandchildren. We're all tempted to do the same things. And here it is. Put your Lord, the Lord your God to the test. If Jesus had followed through with this, it would have certainly been sensational. Can you imagine if someone was standing on top of the church today and jumped off, and all of a sudden there were thousands of angels that came and rushed in and, 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 and saved that person? It would have been a sensational thing. It would have shot Jesus to the front of the Jewish tabloids. It would have made him the Messiah for sure. People would have been wanting to follow after him. They would have been, been mesmerized by what they had seen. Again, Jesus proves something important here. You can believe the promises in faith without making God prove them. A lot of people say, you know, I just need God to give me a sign. He did. It's an empty tomb. That's the sign. Well, if God could just give me a sign. No, no, that is the sign. The sign was that Jesus came and lived a perfect life in your place and in my place, and he died on a cross, and they buried him in a tomb, and after three days, the scripture says that stone was rolled away and a dead man came to life. That's the sign. Remember Jesus said, I'll give you a sign. It's the sign of Jonah. What happened with Jonah? Three days in the belly of the whale and then spit back on dry land. Jesus is saying here, I, I don't have to, to test God to prove that what he says in the scripture is true, but how he goes about doing this is masterful. He takes the scripture and he says, no way. You're taking that scripture and you're pulling it out of context and you're trying to get me to sin. A number of years ago, I was listening to an interview uh, from a famous person. And this person was talking about uh, the real heartache of a marriage that had ended. And it was a, it was a fascinating interview until this person said, you know, I knew that my marriage needed to end when I understood that any man who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is a fool. And I was like, whoa, whoa, wait. Wait just a second. Jesus didn't say that about your marriage, right? What did he say it about? He said it about following him, right? And, and you say, well, I was reading that and it was a sign to me. It, it, it jumped. No, wait, wait just a second. And we'll look at this later. We're, we're going to see it in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. There are some reasons that marriage is in, good and bad, but that can't be one of them, right? That, that can't be why well, I was reading that and it just said, look, put your hand in the plow and look forward and plow on, brother. Let me tell you something. That's why it pays to be biblically literate. That's why it's so important that we say that the Bible, God's never-changing word, guides us as a church family, as individuals in an ever-changing world so that we don't make the mistakes of, of grabbing something out of Scripture and saying, well, it doesn't matter anymore today. We don't have to live like that anymore. You live how you want to. Jesus didn't mean that. That was for the Old Testament. That was, that was for times gone by. I don't listen to the words of Paul as much as I listen to the words of Jesus. No. We don't take Scripture and pull it out and hang one scripture up on the wall and take it out of its context and out of its meaning and try to live our lives that way, we have to live with the whole counsel of the word of God. That's why we preach the Old Testament, the New Testament, the whole counsel of the word of God. It's important for us to know. That's why we encourage you to read the Bible for yourself. Let me help you with this. 
If the only Bible you get is the hour a week that you sit under this teaching, you don't have enough. It's not enough. I, I, I can't do it for you. Your Sunday school teacher can't do it for you. You have to be able to have a hunger and thirst for the word of God yourself. And what Jesus says is so important. We live by every word that comes out of the, the mouth of God. Well, what he's saying is it, we hang on it. We hang on every word. And we allow it to shape our lives. So we know the Bible. We know it correctly. We live it out. Satan comes and he gets Jesus to worry about needs and then testing God and the final temptation, the test of idolatry. Look at verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. What do you think it means that Satan offered to give Jesus all the kingdoms of the world? That's funny, isn't it? We know that Psalm 2 tells us that the kingdoms of the world will one day be the inheritance of the Lord. He'll rule them with an iron scepter and smash them like clay pots with that iron scepter. I mean, it's a fascinating imagery that's given there. So if Jesus was going to get the kingdoms of the world... Why would Satan offer that? I'm not 100% sure. Satan's known as the ruler of this world, right? But some have said it like this, that Satan was offering Jesus a chance to avoid the cross. I'll quit fighting you. I'll give up. Worship me. You have it all. Just a little bit. All you have to do is bow down and worship me just, just once. It just, it, I mean, not long, just, just once. Bow down and worship. Give me, five, give me five minutes. Give me 30 seconds. And all of it can be yours. You can have it all. Well, Jesus knew something about Satan that we sometimes forget. He's not called the liar for no reason. He's called the liar. The accuser. The adversary, the schemes of the devil the scripture talks about. Why, why would he do that? Well, it was idolatry. And you may feel like, well, idolatry is not something I really struggle with. But I bet you do. We sometimes think that we don't struggle with idolatry because maybe we don't worship things crafted from stone and wood and, and that kind of thing. And so we, we would think that that's something that just happened in other cultures maybe that are more primitive than ours or cultures around the world or, or times gone by people used to do that. But I would beg to differ because idolatry is such a sneaky temptation. This is uh, the temptation for us to really have power and pride, ambition, to be able to worship anything that we can that will take the place of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the problem with that, of course, is that we can only worship one thing. We can only worship the Lord. And Jesus quotes again from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. You ever been caught in the trap of idolatry? Just a little bit more ambition? 
What Satan was saying is all of it. It's yours. The kingdoms. You can have it. It's yours. A little more power. You don't have to go to the cross. None of this suffering stuff. You can be as big as you want to be. I think it's personally really easy for me to worship anything instead of the one true God. Oh, it's easy to worship pleasure. Just be consumed by it. Oh, it's easy to worship family time. That's, that's the buzzword today. You know, we just have to have family time. Well, I get it. Your family's important. But at what cost? What do you think you're teaching your kids in family time? If family time means that family is the most important thing, that's your God, not God. I can do that, right? I can worship power, ambition. Oh, it's easy, right? You say, well, how would a preacher want more power and ambition? Oh, man, if we just had 50 more people, some people would notice. Man, if we just had a hundred more people, some people would notice. And I could feel really good about myself, right? I could think about how great I was. And what is it for you? How does power and ambition and pride manifest itself in your life? You worshiping yourself? Money? I mean, what, 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 does, what does it for you what what takes the place of god in your life and, and this is the thing we have to constantly reorient our minds to the lord jesus christ constantly idolatry is not some old testament sin that nobody deals with anymore you deal with it every day me first mentality me i'm the most important I have to have this. I have to get this. I have to pursue this. And at what cost? There's only one true God who we owe our allegiance to and one true God who made a way for us. One Savior who died on the cross and he did it, interestingly enough, after enduring temptation. And the author of Hebrews gives us a great verse to consider in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. In other words, Jesus was like us. He gets it. He knows what it's like to be tempted. But one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus was tempted with drugs? I do. Think he was tempted with greed? I do. Lust? Yep. Power? Idolatry? Think he ever thought it'd be more convenient just to lie? Think he ever struggled with the temptation to hate his brother or his sister? Do you think he struggled with prejudice? That temptation? Or do you think he was just above all of that? No, the scripture says in every way that you're tempted, he was tempted. The difference is he never sinned. Notice what it says about that. Yet without sin, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy 
and find grace to help in the time of need. So what the author of Hebrews is saying is, we have this God who came and lived just like we lived, died uh, a death that wasn't his, died in our place, rose from the dead, and he did something amazing. He fought off temptation at every turn so that he could know exactly what it was like to be you and so that you could know that he had suffered in the same way with the same temptations that you had suffered with. And yet he found a way to overcome them. That gives us hope, doesn't it? Now, here's the truth of it. I said uh, earlier in this message that there was no day that you were going to get to the place where you just don't sin as long as you're alive. But here is the truth. You don't have to sin this afternoon. When you leave here, it will be a choice that you make. It's a choice that I make, right? I mean, there's just times where you say, I know I shouldn't, I'm going to do it anyway, right? I'm just going to do it. Sometimes you, you get caught in the moment and you just make a poor choice. I mean, but we don't have to. If we stopped and allow ourselves to be led by the Spirit this afternoon, we might not have to give in to that same old temptation today. We don't have to be defeated by temptation. Now, I have some bad news. It seems like in my life and maybe in yours, those, those things that just keep nagging at us all the time, those, those temptations that they just come around and around and around, when you defeat that one and you finally get mastery over that by the Lord's grace and his power, there's just another one waiting. You know, Satan doesn't just give up and go, well, oh boy, lick that one. I guess we ought to leave him alone. No, it doesn't work that way. But notice what the scripture says. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. We go before the Lord and we cry out on, on our behalf to him. And, and the scripture says that we receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Meaning that as we're being tempted in our time of need, we can always call upon the Lord and his grace is sufficient to carry us through whatever's going on. Whether we've stumbled into sin, his grace is sufficient to carry us right there. His forgiveness, his mercy is waiting on us. Whether we're being tempted, we can fight temptation. Jesus has given us this way to fight temptation. And you're going to be tempted. You're going to be tempted this year, no doubt about it. But the question is, are you going to be willing and ready to fight temptation with the truth? Can you answer temptation with scripture? Do you call upon the Lord Jesus Christ? Some of us this morning are listening, but we're listening to a lie. Well, it's a lie that says things like you're not good enough, smart enough, pretty enough, you're dumb, you'll never beat this, it's got you, you'll never get over it, you'll never get over that past thing in your life that you did, you're always going to struggle with this, you, ju you just have to deal with it, and, and it's just simply not true. We have a way to fight. But it's a funny thing, isn't it? It's a hard thing for us to talk about fighting because haven't you been told your whole life that fighting is wrong? Right? If you go to school and you get in a fight, you're in trouble. Might get suspended. Might get sent home. And we're not oriented that way in our spiritual lives as well. This understanding, we feel like we should just be able to sit back on the couch and it should just all come to us. And we don't understand that when we woke up this morning, we entered the struggle again. And we have to choose to fight. Choose to fight. Fight temptation. How do we do it? We resist the devil. We quote scripture. We understand what God is saying to us. And we ask for his help. We go before the throne of grace. We appeal to his mercy. Well, for some of us today, the temptation is worrying about stuff. We want more of it. We don't feel like we have enough. We're worried about how God's going to provide for us. 
We're just wondering about those daily needs, but God gives those daily. Some of us have wanted to put God to the test. You know, that's funny. There, there is one place in Scripture that you're told you could put God to the test. If you really want to do it this morning, I'd invite you to. We're about to take our offering. You want to find out if God is real? Start tithing. He says to Malachi chapter 3, try me now in this and see if I won't open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing. But I bet that's not the kind of test you wanted, was it? No, you wanted something sensational. Like, hey, if I grab this snake, will I not get bit? Please don't do that. Satan was a snake, you know. All you people who are snake lovers, no way. Why would we put God to the test? To believe that it's true doesn't mean he has to prove it right now. I can tell you that in my family's life, we've put Malachi 3 to the test and it's been true. You should try it too. If you really want to know, he'll prove it over and over again. Some of you are looking for the easy way to power and pride. You have ambition and it's time to get rid of it. You're worshiping other things. You're not seeing the things that God's doing in your life as for his glory and his purposes. And right now, you're about to make a compromise. It's a little one. And Satan says it won't be a big deal. Just a little one. Worship me, Jesus, just a little bit. Just bow down right now. All this can be over. It's not true. We have to trust the Lord. As we go throughout this year, let's be ready to fight. Let's be ready for the battle. And understand that if we're in the battle, then that means we're right where we need to be. Because heaven is after you die. That's when all that stuff stops. The battle's over then. But while we're on earth, we're going to battle temptation. But we can I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. In the same way that we did last week, our service is going to end a little bit differently. We're going to sing a, a song of response. And then we'll take our offering. But I wonder if today maybe you're struggling with temptation. And if you are, at the very end of our service, our pastors are going to be down at the front after we take our offering and and they'd love to pray with you, counsel with you. If you just need some encouragement. If you're struggling with temptation right now, could you respond to the Lord? Just right now, start to fight. You say, well, how would I do that? Well, identify what Satan's tempting you with. And set it aside. Lord Jesus, thank you that you endure temptation. Thank you that you weathered that storm from the adversary and overcame sin and death for us. And now you've made a way for us in our time of need. Father, 
surely we have all been tempted this week and some of us right now are in the midst of the greatest temptations of our lives. We're wondering if you're real. And we've been tempted to try to make you prove it. We're worried about daily needs. And those have consumed us. We're trying to live next year today. Some of us, Lord, are fighting idolatry. Pride, power, ambition. We ask God that you would give us deliverance from our temptations as we fight this morning. We thank you that we are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And no weapon formed against us can prosper. And we claim the promises of scripture this morning that if we resist the devil, he will flee just like he did when you told him to go. And not by our power, Lord, but by yours. We claim your grace over our lives and we resist. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.